0: Come on, let's go. I'm here to let you know we're gonna journey through the faith with you. Come on, let's roll before your coffee gets cold. It's time for the JP2 more.
1: Good morning and welcome to JP2 Morning Crew on this Friday of the first week in Ordinary Time. Brandon Clark here coming to you from the Morning Crew studio and co-hosting with me today is Steve Splonskowski. Good morning, Steve.
2: Good morning, Brandon. How are you doing today?
1: I am doing very good, Steve. We just actually completed the Christmas season having celebrated both the Epiphany and the baptism of the Lord on Sunday and Monday, respectively. And so we're journeying into ordinary time on the liturgical calendar. But I did want to spend just a couple of minutes reflecting on Epiphany, because I think there's certainly a lot to unpack there. So for our listeners, Steve, can you just talk a little bit, first of all, what Epiphany is, and then just offer a, a short reflection that you might have?
2: Absolutely. Of course, Epiphany is that great time when we know the three kings come in search of the Messiah, they've seen this star, and they're following it, um, and they're brought to the Holy Family, right, where Jesus is there, and uh, they've been, they, you know, they're not actually believers, the three kings are technically or, you know, traditionally not believers, but they also um, are have a desire for uh, the fulfillment of this prophecy that they've heard so much about, and so they come looking for the Messiah, and uh, and they find him. And they bring him the, golds of, the, the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which all have special meanings to them. I won't go into them now. You can look that up. Uh, but again, they all have a special meaning in saying that he is a king, that he is the king, mm. and uh, so they come looking for him. And I think this this time, what I love, Brandon, about this imagery of the star, right? It, this this image of of keeping our eyes fixed our eyes fixed on a promise and of course keeping our eyes fixed on the lord but these three kings keeping their eyes fixed on this star this sign in the heavens a promise that was given to abraham you know and to his son isaac and then to his son jacob and then you know we just celebrated that the really the the coming and the fulfillment of that promise um at christmas when the messiah is born and brought into the world and so Looking at that promise and noticing, I think, in our own lives, the Lord has given each of us a promise, a promise that he will be with us, that he will also give us a part in this work of salvation, this ongoing salvation of souls that he has in mind for the entire world, um, for all of us. And so he gives us a part in that. And for myself, Brandon, and and sharing, sharing with my children, even today, this sense of always be aware that the Lord is asking you today to participate in this work of salvation of souls, this work of bringing souls and persons into an encounter with the Lord. And I love that word encounter. It's really, you take it down to the root words, the Latin root words of encounter. It's basically an unintended or an unexpected collision. (laughs) And I think we have this time where we encounter the Lord and there's this unexpected, whoa, I didn't expect to find you here, but the Lord is everywhere, and he does want to be a part of our every day and our every moment. So I think to me that is is that um, opportunity. If we keep our eyes fixed on him, when we do encounter him, we will know him. And that's how we just, you know, again, celebrating him at Christmas. So a couple of thoughts there, how And about, How about you? Thoughts that you have on on the epiphany?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point you bring up about being fixed on the star and being fixed on the Lord. Uh, it, It really brings me back to when Peter is in the boat and Jesus comes walking on the water and Peter says, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you. And he gets out of the boat and he starts walking on the water, right? But then what does he do? He takes his eyes off of the Lord. And so he begins to sink. And so, you know, as I think about that, and I think about just how the journey of life goes there's always an opportunity to reset and refocus on what's important and and keeping our eyes on the lord no matter what wind and and waves come maybe it's a snowstorm who knows what uh, what the weather's gonna bring um but always remembering that jesus is the way the truth and the life and he's always going to be our guide he's always going to be that north star for us that's that's really what i think of steve
2: you know, I think it's a great uh, conversation. We start up here, and I don't think we really intended this as the Holy Spirit always, you know, He, he kind of guides us. But today, we're going to talk about more about uh, this, this, really the guiding star. And the guiding star of our faith is the source and summit of our faith, which is the Eucharist, which is made available to us because of the Holy Mass that we celebrate, which is the guiding star of our conversation. And so in our conversation today, we're going to talk about the source and summit and how really keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus in the Eucharist and in the Mass is such a, again, the source and summit of our faith.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. So today on JP2 Morning Crew, our special guest is Maggie Gallagher. And Steve, uh, I'm really excited for this conversation because you were talking about the Eucharist. And really what we're going to dive into is rediscovering a sense of the sacred, like where has the sacred gone how do we rediscover that and actually how does that help us evangelize future generations so there's a lot to unpack here today i'm excited about
2: absolutely no the the sense of the sacred is really lost i think even in that sense of you know, uh, sacred coming even from what is authority and what is obedience. And these are kind of words that we really don't like right now uh, because it seems to limit my freedom, which a sense of freedom is doing whatever I want to. But that's not what true freedom is. Uh, freedom is truly uh, being able to pursue the truth and to know the truth. And so we're going to enter into that conversation really about this beauty uh, of of the sacred, Brandon.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Maggie, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to be with you guys. So before we get any further, do you mind just opening us up in prayer?
0: Let's say in our Father then. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed is thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.
2: And Maggie, uh, let's say, as we enter this conversation, tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Well, what would you like to know? I'm 63 years old, so there's quite a lot of history. I run, I, um, let, let me say I began life as a, um, conservative opinion journalist. My first job was at national review. I, While still uh, an atheist, I'm a revert, I wrote a book called Enemies of Eros, How the Sexual Revolution is Killing Family, Marriage, and Sex, and What We Can Do About It, which ends up being kind of as a young woman reflecting on my own experience and those of my um, colleagues, my uh, cohort. Um, it comes remarkably close to what Jean Paul II wrote in Love and Responsibility. So um, I came back to the church in my late 20s um, and uh, wrote four books, mostly on marriage. And then I, the gay marriage hit like a comet from afar. And I felt called to um, engage in that Fight because I understood what it was going to mean for marriage as a social institution. And so I founded, I eventually ended up founding the National Organization for Marriage, which for a period of about five years was the largest national organization um, fighting gay marriage. And uh, that's when I met Archbishop Cordeleoni when he was the baby bishop of San Diego, the auxiliary bishop um and he asked us he asked me to come to california and help him get what became prop eight uh, on the ballot and uh so that was a great victory and a great friendship fortune battle and when he moved to san francisco we started talking about i i stepped aside from the national organization for marriage because we had a disagreement about what would be the most successful strategy um, and I'm sad to say I wasn't wrong. I don't know if I was right, but th- theirs didn't work. So, um, But it would have been better if I was wrong. Uh, they, So he started uh, talking to me about what I might do. And eventually he asked me to help him get the Benedict XVI Institute for Sacred Music and Divine Worship off the ground. Um, so in 2017... Um, I'd like to say my husband flat refused to move to San Francisco and live in a shoebox. So we agreed that I would just fly back and forth a lot. And um, that's uh, one version of my life. <laughs> what else would you like to know?
2: Well, that's a great start. And they're talking about the Benedict XVI the Institute um, really creating right this, this beauty or helping to restore this beauty of the sacred liturgy and the arts, uh, is that getting involved in that, Maggie? Do you have a, a deep love for music, for for uh, for the arts, or what? What does seem to appeal to you when uh, Arch- Archbishop invited you to this? It wasn't Archbishop at the time.
0: He was uh, he was Archbishop. Yeah, I I um I'm very motivated by two things, and uh, one is to do something that, if I don't do it, it's not going to happen. And the second is to do things for people that I actually love. And so you, you know, what appealed to me about this job is, is it's a wonderful combination of the two. I do not have a background in liturgy or sacred music, particularly. Um, uh, but I learned a lot about how culture works while watching and engaging in the two marriage wars, as I like to say, the first in the 90s about whether dads matter and whether marriage matters for children. And then the next wave where we lost as a culture the understanding that marriage is about bringing together the two great halves of humanity, male and female, so that we can make and raise the next generation together. That's its principle social reason for being and why it exists in virtually every known human society. And it's now been repurposed and its purposes are vague and unclear. So anyway, that's, um, I like to say uh, the Archbishop really needed, wanted to get an organization off the ground. And it's hard to hire someone to do that because if you know how to start an organization, you're usually running your own organization, but for a variety of reasons, I was available, and it's been a really interesting and, and fascinating ride um, to figure out this twin and related task of more beautiful and reverent liturgy, which in turn energizes a Catholic culture of the arts. It's always been the way that the, the reason the Catholic Church has been such a creative force in the arts and music for centuries is because of the way I think the liturgy reveals the reality that the world of the senses is not all there is. So it touches the imagination. And uh, that is something that has inspired a number of artists over the years, including today. I mean, one of the things that I just noticed, I'm not, uh, I don't go to the Latin mass. I mean, I have gone, but I have a beautiful Novus Ordo parish near me and that's fine. But I didn't notice that the group of sacred music composers that we've started to gather around almost to a man or a woman are nourished and nurtured on the traditional Latin mass. So there is something about the, the deep mystical sense of the liturgy that makes something apparent to us and then in turn inspires um, the artists to create more for the glory of God.
1: You know, as we think about the word sacred, can you just define for our listeners, what do we mean when we talk about sacred in terms of the liturgy and the arts? And I guess a follow-up question to that would be, how did we lose a sense of the sacred in the first place, Maggie?
0: Well, the sacred is it's the presence of God, really. It's what's set apart from the ordinary world. Uh, And it gives us access then because it is set apart into the reality of the divine ordering of our souls, our lives, the universe. And, you know, the archbishop is the one who really, Key, Archbishop Archbishop who keyed me in on this. A great deal of it, I think stems from the many choices involved in the current uh, rite, which can be done reverently, and as Pope Benedict wanted it to be informed by the older so that it's a development and not a rupture. But in many places, the the sense that a miracle is happening in front of us that both the the sacrifice of the Lord and his saving action are made visible there at the mass every Sunday. Um, that used to, we, we, even if we know that now we can tell by the way we worship in many places that we don't really experience that, even if we know that it's true. And of course, a lot of Catholics no longer know that it's true or believe that it's true that Christ himself is coming to us under the appearance of bread and wine each Sunday, an amazing thing. Um, And uh, so, I mean, the Archbishop told me a story about he was in a a church, he was in an ordinary parish church and uh, there was a pancake Sunday breakfast going on below in the basement and a guy was coming up to get more chairs and but it was, he came into the church and saw it was the moment of consecration and he dropped to his knees immediately in silence. Right. And, uh, the idea, we all went fellowship. There's nothing wrong with friendship and chatting, but if we have really experienced the Lord himself coming to us, then you can tell that has happened when people want to pray. They want to be silent and to reflect because they're in the presence of a great mystery. I don't want to emphasize that it's disrespectful or something like that. I think it's a symptom of the fact that too many of us are not getting what we ought to get, the great the great and wonderful mystery of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to us in, in, the, in the Eucharist so it's the archbishop's uh, belief and i think he's right that restoring reverence in the liturgy and beauty in the liturgy which includes getting over this very strange sense that there's something wrong about spending money to beautify the mass right that's it goes very deep most catholics are seem in america at least seem to think there's there's they're they're like was it the, they're like Judas rebuking the woman who showered expensive perfume on Jesus, like his, that money could have been saved for the poor. But that was not Jesus's point of view that and and the Archbishop always tells me he said, if you put God first, everything else will fall into place, including a, a renewed love of your neighbor and a reaching out to help those in need. So We're physical beings, and when we don't treat the miracle like it is a miracle, and we don't invest in the beauty of the Mass, um, we're failing to honor God properly. That's the most important thing. But we're also then losing our capacity to experience the Lord fully.
1: Yeah. If you're just tuning in on this Friday morning, this is the JP2 Morning Crew on JP2 Radio. I'm Brandon Clark, joined by Steve Splonskowski. And in studio this morning, we have Maggie Gallagher, who is the executive director of the Benedict XVI Institute. This is an institute that was founded by Archbishop Salvatore Cordleoni, who's the Archbishop of San Francisco. And the goal, Steve, that we're talking about really is is to energize a, a Catholic renaissance of sorts in the liturgy and the arts.
2: Well, and of course, that word renaissance means rebirth. Of course, a great, uh, I believe it's a French root there, but it's a rebirth. Uh, so it's not, we're not creating something new. Uh, we're actually bringing it back again. And I think that's a great uh, conversation we're having here. Of course, we're in the Eucharistic uh, revival, which is also another word, a rebirth. Mm-hmm bringing back to and i think uh, as we're talking with maggie here that that really comes to mind that sense of you know a lot of times in the world right now uh people would say well okay so we don't believe in the eucharist so what who cares why does it matter i know a lot of times in a lot of our protestant brethren when we talk about the eucharist or what they believe about the eucharist there's a lot of things their answer for a lot of these questions um is it doesn't matter and I, but it does and that's you know if you go back to the end, if Jesus is not truly present in the Eucharist, then then what do we have? If Jesus is not truly the Messiah, then what do we have, Maggie?
0: Well, you know I I, I, I love my Protestant brothers and sisters having worked with them in the field with them on the life issue and the marriage issue, but I just don't see how they get over John six. I mean, it, it's it's deeply biblical. Jesus said, "You have to eat me if you want life. And it, he clearly wasn't speaking symbolically because everyone was like, well, oh, that's cannibalism, that's gross. you know it's deeply offensive to Jewish mores uh, uh, which we don't you know if anyone's mores really, since you're talking about human flesh. but and 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 he lost. Followers, he, he was offered the chance to explain that it was just a striking metaphor, right? And he refused to do that. In fact, uh, the word that he used is "is you have to gnaw on my flesh," right? We and he uh, and and uh, you know, people quite understandably said, "What are you talking about? We, you know, we know this guy from Bethlehem, uh, from Nazareth." And we know his mom and dad, like, how, how can, what? what? And they started to go. And his disciple, he didn't call them back. He didn't say, wait a minute, you don't understand what I'm really saying. He turned to his disciples and said, what about you? And Peter said, you know, where would we go? You, you have the words of life. So um, Jesus instituted the Eucharist. He, he, he foretold its necessity. He compared it to the manna that saved the Israelis in the desert, but said they died anyway. If you eat me, you will not die. You will have eternal life. So if we can't trust the words of Jesus, I don't know what we can rest on finally, because I've never seen anything more clear and more clearly designed to f- forestall and forbid a merely symbolic interpretation of his words. And then again, you have the, the early the people who live with Jesus and knew him, they uh, described the Eucharist in this way, right? This is, it was what was passed on. And this is the earliest form of Christianity, as we know from some of the early church fathers. So um, the Eucharist though, I mean, it's a great gift. It's like, we're human. We need to see and touch and feel, and we need to know we're not alone. And we need to know that the promises of God are are, are with us. And that's what that's what the Eucharist is. Um, and that's why Eucharist means Thanksgiving. So, just an amazing, wonderful thing. And the sad thing is when we don't treat this miracle like the gift that it is. We it, it calls for us to respond um, with gratitude and to treat the Holy of Holies as what it is.
2: Well, I think, Maggie, as you're mentioning here, it makes me think of the four transcendental four transcendentals, the, the true, the good, the beautiful, and the unity. So the one, the true, and the good, and the beautiful of, of those. And we're talking about the truth, right? The truth is that Jesus is truly present in the Eucharist. We have to have that truth. And with the, the divine liturgy and the Renaissance, the rebirth of the divine liturgy that that we're you're working on here, we're talking about the beautiful. And I know Dost, uh, Fyodor Dostoyevsky, a Russian author, one of his lines was beauty will save the world, right? And that's, I know a lot of the, the youth right now, they're drawn, they're drawn into a goodness from service and from beauty. Um, and so that's something that really draws them into this transcendental, like a, a higher level of conversation. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the, how this beauty is so important.
0: Well, partly it's because, I mean, we, first of all, these are the three faces of God, essentially, truth, beauty, and goodness. It, and we need to run on all cylinders if we want to evangelize ourselves, much less the, the culture. And um, so we have a lot of, we're doing pretty good on apologists. We could maybe use some better sermons, but um, there's a lot of very powerful people of intellect writing cognitively about the truths of the faith. And the church has always been number one in service and in helping it and reaching out So that's wonderful. But for about 50 years, we just dropped beauty. And it's somewhat inexplicable, um, except for we, we managed to forget what we always knew, which is that beauty is not a luxury toy for rich people. It's a way, first of all, for us to express our profound gratitude to the Lord. It's the way... When in the Old Testament, when God himself speaks and tells the Israelites how he wants to be worshipped, he doesn't say, I want a plain brown box, please spend the rest of the money on the poor. He says gold, you know, he wants he he there's the, the the splendor is only a pale echo of the splendor of God, but it's appropriate that we worship him in splendor because he is that. And then there's the reality that we live in a culture that has lost faith in reason, right? People, we, we've lost the vocabulary of truth. We're seeing that play out in so many ways, including now at Harvard, where, you know, the plagiarism is not to an ordinary person a great crime, but to a scholar who is whose mission and reason is discovering truth. It's a, it's a special uh sin against his meaning and purpose. But if you think that the purpose of the university is no longer the pursuit of truth, then maybe it's not as serious as we imagined it was or always did. So beauty gets around the cognitive barriers, because it directly affects experience, your experience. And it is, I think, a a way Pope Benedict talked about it as a way of knowing, right? there's the sensory ways of knowing things that can be sensibly understood. But if you want to uh, know what a nation is, you start to need symbols, right? You need, you need a flag, you need a parade, you need things that give you access into the reality of what a nation is, but are can't be immediately apprehended. And how much more so than you know, the, the choir of angels, the reality of the four last things. The miracle of Christ's birth and the even greater miracle of his coming to us on Sunday for salvation. These are things, this, this sense that there is an order and unity in the universe. It's not ruled by chance and it's not ruled by us. These are things which beauty gives us access to in a very special way and in a communal way, right? We can experience beauty together and I think that's powerful too.
1: Maggie, we just have about 30 seconds left here. Uh, thinking about our discussion this morning and all the things that Benedict XVI Institute is doing, what are some of the events and, and different things that we should be watching for this year coming out of the Institute?
0: Well, on February 10th, we have a celebration of a new Frank Lerokka Mass, a second celebration, the Messe de Milades, honoring Our Lady of Lords. We have a new celebration of the Requiem for the Forgotten, in Miami on March 15th and in San Francisco, please come if you can. The USCCB is launching its National Eucharistic procession from the West from San Francisco and the Archbishop has commissioned a new Frank LaRocca Mass, a Mass for Eucharistic Renaissance. And it is going to be a gorgeous experience. And then you can process with the Archbishop across the Golden Gate Bridge and uh, give a, a great leave taking to our fellow processors who are going to meet up in Indianapolis for the National Eucharistic Congress.
1: And where can listeners find out more information about all the things you just mentioned?
0: Come subscribe at BenedictInstitute.org, and um, you 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 get uh, updates from me. If you hit reply to that email, it comes straight to me, and I'd love to hear from you. So, all of the friends of of, of the Lord and Archbishop Cordelione in particular, we welcome to BenedictInstitute.org.
1: Wonderful. Maggie, thanks so much for joining us today. And to our listeners, if you've missed any of this segment, I really want to encourage you to go back and listen to the whole thing. You can find the entire show on our website, JP2, that's the number two, jp2radio.com. Just look us up under JP2 Morning Crew Podcast under programming. The program is also available on YouTube as well. So Steve, just a couple of seconds remaining. Any final thoughts that you might have for today?
2: Well, I also want to thank the Knights of Columbus for supporting JP2 Catholic Radio and the JP2 Morning Crew. Um, Of course, through their Cars for Babies donation opportunities, you can donate your car, truck, boat, or plane to carsforbabies.com. Again, you can learn more at carsforbabies.com.
1: All right, that's all for us here on JP2 Morning Crew. Up next, it's Life is Worth Living with Archbishop Fulton Sheen. JP2 Morning Crew returns next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific right here on JP2 Radio. God bless i